the bustling sounds of New York City. You can walk down any street and hear sirens, car horns, music, and people talking about pretty much anything. In a city like New York, it's hard to get just a moment of silence. Good morning. I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're turning down the volume with a look at two events in New York City where silence is key, including a silent dining experience in Brooklyn. It sort of changes people's conception of what it means to eat with other people or what it means to eat alone, because when you're not having conversation, you can either really try to get into some kind of quiet communication with your eating partners, or you can be totally with yourself and with your food. First up, we take a break from the noise to talk to one of the guys behind a film series in New York City called Silent Clowns. It's billed as the city's longest-running, regularly scheduled showcase for classic silent film comedy. Ben Modell, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. I love being on the radio. How long have you been doing this film series? Well, which film series are we talking about? The Silent Clowns Oh, the Silent Clowns film series. Uh, We started in the summer of 1997, renting a black box theater in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And we've managed, uh, while switching venues a number of times, uh, to stay in the Upper West Side. We're a not-for-profit. We're currently partnering with the Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. So you're a not-for-profit. What is your mission as a not-for-profit? Our mission is to bring classic silent film and silent film comedy to new audiences shown on film in a theater with live musical accompaniment. Why is that important to you? Oh, this is a big part of my own personal mission statement. I grew up being crazy about silent movies. Uh, You used to be able to see them on television. They didn't show them just at midnight on Sundays, which is a great time if you're a zombie or a vampire. But they used to run them uh, on public television or the independent stations as filler or kids programming or just as regular programming. And I knew somebody who showed me movies. It was the only way you could see film before the age of videos, if you knew a collector. Uh, I was lucky in that I grew up in a town called Larchmont, where uh, a man named Walter Kerr lived. Uh, He and his wife, Jean, who is probably best known for writing Please Don't Eat the Daisies, uh, he himself was the drama critic for the New York Times, and they lived in that Please Don't Eat the Daisies house. But he had written a book called The Silent Clowns, all, all about silent comedy film. Hence the name of the film series. Well, yes, exactly. And uh, basically, I I got the book when I was 12, I think, and wrote him a letter because my folks had heard he had a a huge collection of film. And I wrote him a letter, and he called me up a few days later. And basically, for the next 15 years, I would go to his house every, I don't know, a few times a year, always on a Monday night because he wasn't, you know, at the theater uh, reviewing something. And he would just say, well, what do you want to see? And so for me and my... uh, partner in crime on the series, Bruce Lawton, who um, his grandfather, actually his great-grandfather was a cameraman in the silent film era, and his grandfather did a lot of film restoration. Uh, If you ever saw silent film on public television in the 70s, most of those restorations were done by Bruce's grandfather, Carl Malkin. So Bruce and I connected years, years and maybe 20 years ago or so, and we both had had this experience uh, between these gentlemen and, and a guy named William K. Everson of this idea of, of showing classic, showing silent film to other people and from their own 16-millimeter collections. And so we, when we started the series, at the time, 
you know, silent film was shown uh, more sporadically than it is now, and even then in a festival format. So you you would see all of Keaton's films in two weeks, and then you'd have to wait a year or two for something else major to happen. We figured, well, there's an audience for this. Why not present something on a year-round basis? So we we started the series that way. Are most silent films comedic in nature? No. Um, most silent films are, are especially during the silent film era, were, were dramatic, dramatic. And the comedy short was something that was an... In a way, is an uh, an anchor for the your the film uh, movie theater uh, program or manager or whatever, because uh, it not only was a warm up uh, for the feature, but sometimes it was the thing that drew drew crowds. Uh, and with and and I've seen trade reviews where oh my goodness, thank goodness for the the cartoon because it saved the show. And they would run the short after the feature, so you were there to see whatever five or six real drama was on the screen, but mainly you were there to see the new Lloyd Hamilton comedy. So they're not primarily comedies, but I would say for a novice audience, that's the easiest draw. Um, at least if you if you hear silent film, which is an awful name for any kind of a genre, because it sounds like you're going to have a bad time right off the bat. Silent film, you know, it's, it's, it's my analogy is like saying, well, we're going to go out to a bar, but it's in a library. Uh, so at least if you know, well, it's going to be funny, at least, uh, you know, it's not going to be uh, uh, what you think is torture. And, and it, it really isn't. It's, it's actually a lot more fun than, than most people think it's going to be. During what time period were silent films at their peak? Well, I would say the peak happened some point after World War One, and then Unfortunately, I, I think the peak probably would have continued another few years uh, had sound not come in. If you see a lot of the films that were being made and released in 27 and 28, you can't believe the, 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 the quality and the storytelling and the expression. And, uh, and uh, it's all, almost uh, painful to watch films like Steamboat Bill Jr. and Sunrise and knowing that this entire language was going to go completely out the window in a matter of months. Uh, but re- I would say I would say the the 1920s or the early 20s through 1928. Who else were among the most popular silent film actors of their time? Oh, well, Mary Pickford, who's a, a very important figure because she was not only a star, uh, she was a producer. She was one of the first people to really take control of her movies and the way they were distributed. Uh, and she was a, a huge, huge star. There's no way to equate that with anything that's going on today. And then Douglas Fairbanks, and the, the two of them were, were, you know, they were a couple. So that's like an amazing uh, superpower in terms of entertainment. And then you had many other people, Lillian Gish and Richard Barthelmess and John Gilbert and Greta Garbo, and, and the list goes on and on. Tom Mix, uh, Roscoe R. Buckle, uh, I mentioned Lloyd Hamilton, uh, Charlie Chase. Uh, there's, there's tons of people uh, and their films uh, are still extremely entertaining uh, today if you can get to see them, especially in a theatrical setting with live musical accompaniment. That's what you provide, correct? Yeah, yeah that's that's a big part of what I, I do. I'm a, I play piano and I play p- uh, theater organ, uh, which is really, it's known as the King of Instruments. It was originally called also the, a unit orchestra. Uh, and I create and uh Pre-compose or primarily improvise live musical scores for uh, motion pictures made before 1930, basically. 
What's the process like when you do that? Well, the process is there's a range, you know, the, from one extreme is uh, watching the film at least once, making a lot of story notes, doing a lot of research on music. Um, if it's a, a of a particular culture, you try to find music from that culture and create sound alikes. You don't want to play music that people will recognize because it pulls them out of the film. Write out incidental music. Maybe you rehearse. Uh, and then the the other end of the spectrum is things that happens to me at, at uh, the Museum of Modern Art or film festivals that I play at where I'll sit down and I have never seen the film. I don't tell the audience that, but I'm, compl- I'm playing the film completely cold. I, I, I refer to it as sight reading a film. So, um, it, you know, the idea is it's always a matter of uh, anticipating and drawing on a musical language that I have in the back of my head. It's kind of like the way jazz works where you've developed a, a vocabulary and you're, you're free associating and drawing on it constantly. Um, the difference is that with jazz, you know, you have a 32-bar piece and there's a chord structure that you dance around. Uh, uh, and with film, the chord structure is completely uh, dictated by the dramatic action or the comedic timing of, of what's on screen. And so if I've never seen the film, you know, you're... Con- you know, it, it, I may never get to finish a theme because, oh my goodness, they've faded out or they've cut to something. And I've got to, you know, you have to keep up with the film and actually try to stay ahead of it. So I'm constantly looking at the screen. And it's it's kind of like driving somewhere at night where you've never been before. You're constantly looking all over the place. You don't just stare at the yellow line and hope for the best. You're looking everywhere for landmarks, uh, street signs, uh, anything. So I'll look all around the frame while also concentrating on the action so I can stay ahead of the picture. I was going to say, I would imagine you have to be on point because if you're not, you can really change the mood of the film. Well, absolutely. And you, and you can do that uh, when, you are, when, you're, when you are prepared. I mean, that's the, the fun of improvising, that sometimes ideas will occur to me during a show, even if it's a film I've played for a number of times, or something, as I, the expression I have, is that some, something will just come out of my hands and uh, it's because at, at this point it's pretty instinctive, and I'll go, oh, well, that works really well. So, uh, for instance, there's a couple of routines in some of the uh, Charlie Chaplin's shorts that that worked fine in his show, and I hear it, but I felt, you know, having done work as, as, a, as a doing sketch and improv comedy, I know that a comedian puts a, a, a scene in if it works, and if it doesn't work, they take it out. So if I... If I'm playing for a film and something is not getting the laugh, it it should should be getting. I'll, I'll try different things. And there's sometimes uh, it's happened where all of a sudden I started tr- uh, playing a tango, and all of a sudden the laughs are there. And I thought, okay, well, um, I guess that works. So yeah, you're you're totally on point. So uh, you're the idea is to support the drama of the film and to as much as you can understand the 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 point of view of the people making the film the director or the the scenario writer sometimes that's the same person so that a contemporary audience can enjoy the film to the same degree that um griffith or fairbanks or eisenstein uh would want they would you would get the same enjoyment and uh, uh, the same point and emotions uh, as as uh, if, if they had made it the film today I know that you have a Q&A at your Silent Clowns film series, right, with film historians. That's right. What are among the questions that typically come up? Typically, well, I always get asked if, the, you know, things, if, if people have not been to the series before, they ask me, was that the original score? And 
boy, that must be tiring and stuff like that. And the answer is no, that wasn't the original score. And no, it isn't tiring because I have a good time. Um, questions that get asked to Bruce Lawton and also Steve Massa, who's part of our staff and is an amazing historian, often relate to uh, the career arc of some of the people in the film, either the stars or uh, some of the other character players. That's Steve Massa's specialty. Um, you know, who is that lady? Oh, that's Blanche Payson. And he'll give you their, you know, who she was, how she got into pictures, what she did, what you might have seen her in, one of the last things she was in, or the provenance of the print itself. And Bruce is very well versed in that sort of thing, knowing where films came from, uh, how they got copied, what's missing, what's here, what's better, what's a better print, and that that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, for the three of us, our main intent is not only to inform the audience, but to help put uh, the film in context. This is usually uh, a main part of our film introduction. There's always a spoken introduction before we start the show, just to give people an idea. We may go into a little more detail than Robert Osborne does, but we have a little more time. And the idea being to just to let people know uh, what they're in for, who Richard Bartholomus is, or wh- why why we're showing this film. Bruce is the programmer. And so he'll 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 often talk about why he's chosen this film and how he's built the the whole season. Um, like our current season is is a, a group of, pro, of films that Bruce has put together called I'm gonna garble this, but it's something like uh, certainly known yet rarely shown. And these are films that are really things that oh yeah yeah I've heard of that, but and they they never get shown. So we showed the fan the Phantom of the Opera, but not the version everybody's seen. We uh, Bruce tracked down a print of the original 1925 release, which is about 15, 20 minutes longer, but it, it's it's a much better picture. It doesn't survive as well as the 29, 1930 version everybody's seen. Um, we've shown Tollable David, which is a dramatic film that everybody's heard of it, but nobody ever shows it. And it just blew the audience away. Um, Who is so, your audience, by the way? Our audience, it's a mix of 30 and 40-somethings who are into classic film. Uh, there are a lot of seniors. I mean, we do our show at the library, and so and it's free. So there's a, that's certainly a part of the mix. But there are families who come to the shows. Uh, I've just met a, a young man who's 10, who's crazy about silent film and early and classic film. And there are a couple of kids who are now uh, in college who have almost basically grown up coming to the shows uh, on and off. And th- the thing is, because our shows are held on a weekend afternoon, and initially it was because that's when we could get into the theater, but the positive byproduct of that is that it is a time when families can come. Uh, if people want to share silent film with their kids. It's not on a school night. So it, it's it's a, this was a, another thing that was, again, part of our mission statement for me and Bruce having grown up as kids watching these things we wanted to be able to show them at a time when kids who are interest, interested you know could come uh, and, and, and see the films and see them the right way not just watch them on, on YouTube with awful music and, and illegally uploaded stuff At which library do you hold these screenings? Oh it's the, the li- well the official name is the Library for the Performing Arts but everybody calls it the Lincoln Center Library it's at Lincoln Center in the back, behind the, that sculpture in the, the, the pond there. What would you say is the biggest takeaway in silent films for today's moviegoers? The biggest takeaway is, and it's something that will probably surprise people who come for the first time, is how, uh, how much more satisfying 
an exper- a movie going experience it can be. You know, the, Hollywood is very busy trying to take over all of your senses by there's 3D and there's surround sound and now they're putting you know Barca lounges in all the movie theaters and I don't know they're running out of ideas except to have you know turn it into a spa and have have give you a rub down during the movie because they're. I think that people need some sort of engagement and they're running out of gimmicks to bombard you with. And the silent film, ironically, because there's something missing, draws you in. And it's the same reason, you know, the reason that uh, silent film is is gaining in popularity year after year. It's the same reason that video games have been outselling DVDs is you're engaged. It's something that invites you to play along. Again, in the the book, The Silent Clowns, the first two or three chapters, Walter Kerr discusses this and the, the, how the aesthetic of the lack of sound, the lack of color, and, and this is a key thing for me, the speed or speed up of silent film. All, all, almost all silent film is meant to be shown a little faster than it was shot, and that's a whole other topic. But because of those elements, there is a, it, it's another world, another universe, and you can really get lost in it because you're supplying all these other elements. And it's not like you're doing work. You know, like you have to work on it. I do a lot of school shows, and the teachers and uh, adults will think, oh, I don't know if they're going to go for this. There's no this, there's no that. And as soon as the lights are off and the film starts, kids just dive right in. Uh, they're probably better a better audience because they're used to using their imagination. Little kids don't go, oh, that's not a real car. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not a real person. That's a 12-inch plastic figurine that looks like a woman. They're used to doing stuff like that, and it's like uh, for most of us, we're bombarded these days with data. Our left brain is ready to burst, and uh, silent film, again, the same way with video games and the way that circus is coming back, it's like a a huge holiday for your right brain, uh, which is not getting enough exercise. So it's, you know, the thing people always say, when they've come to a silent film for the first time, they always say, this was way more fun than I thought it was going to be. What's the short answer as to why the action is sped up? I'll try to give a very short answer because it's in two pieces. One is, basically, the projectors were hand-cranked. And at some point, theater owners realized that if they ran the films faster, at the end of the day, they could squeeze in an extra show. And there was... For whatever reason, no way to get them to go back on that, but you you can't tell hundreds of movie theater owners, please make less money. For whatever reason, still not clear, filmmakers did not start cranking faster to keep up with it. They did a little bit. It just seemed that, seems to me, from just from watching a lot of film, that at some point in the mid-teens, everybody just said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And continued, they would continue cranking at 14 or 16 and the, the theaters were running films at 20, 21, 22 frames per second. The beauty is that if everything is fast, you can crank at a variety of speeds since everything is, is, is fast. And this gave comedians especially, as well as action stars like Fairbanks, the latitude to create gags and stunts that can't exist in, real, in the real world, in real time. And that's really what got lost when sound came in. It's not, oh, we had to add sound and so-and-so's voice wasn't right. I mean, it, it's an entirely different style of filmmaking and storytelling and, and gag creating that you just couldn't do anymore. Did that happen to silent film actors when sound films came on the scene? They lost their careers because they could not adapt? 
I think it's a mix of things. There, there were some who couldn't adapt. There are some who, who had uh, enough stage training and were able to make the adjustment. And uh, there are people like William Powell who, in silent films, was just playing characters that he looked like. He's play, he usually plays slimy, evil people. And sound comes in. He has this wonderful voice and he becomes somebody else. There were people who had been in silent pictures for 10, 12 years, like Constance and Norma Talmadge, who had had long careers. And sound came in. They made a couple of films, and they had had a nice career, and there's no need to continue on. There were some people whose whose voices were not really that suited. But the, the style of filmmaking changed a great deal. I mean, with silent film, you can talk while the while the cameras are turning, and you can make a lot of noise. And it was a much more, you know... If you've ever anyone's ever been on a, a film shoot or a TV station, uh, as soon as it's live, or as soon as we're shooting, everybody has to hold their breath. It's a very different atmosphere. And after 10, 15 years of fun and making a lot of noise, and and uh, you know, the, and having a very improvisatory uh, structure to the creative process, especially again for the the comedies, it was just a the. I think that the part of the issue is that the ball game was very different. And if you look at early, early talkies, you can see who of the actors had been in silent pictures for a long time because they're still moving slower and they're still putting those extra pauses in and they haven't quite made the adjustment. And the other people in the scenes with them are moving like nothing has changed. Like I said, some people made the adjustment, some people didn't. Is the audience at a silent film today any quieter? than at a sound film, do you think? Because they're more focused on the screen. I would say a little bit more because uh, you're you're in, in the Like I was saying before, you know, they're engaged more. With a silent film, You there's every shot introduces new information. Uh, you can't get up and go to the bathroom and come back three minutes later and say, hey, what did I miss? You know, you're really paying attention uh, a lot more. So, so if you unwrap a candy... You know, during a screening of, you know, uh, Seventh Heaven or Orphans of the Storm, it'll, you know, it'll be heard. I mean, you, you, you know, unwrap your candies first. Even if you put your phone on vibrate, you're, that is really noticeable and everybody will turn and, and glare at you, including, including me. Because it's very, it's distracting. It's distracting for me because it pulls me out of what, what, what I'm doing. So it's, it's, uh, I think that, it's quieter, and also the concentration is, is different. And we can go out of this interview with a piece of your music, right, oh, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. You have my blessing, please. <laughs> ben, thanks so much for coming in. All right, thanks so much. Ben Modell is the producer and musical accompanist for the Silent Clowns film series. Find out more about their events at silentclowns.com. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. Shh. On this morning's show, we're looking at New York City's quieter side by showcasing events where silence is key. Joining me now on the phone is Nicholas Nauman. He's the managing chef and events planner at a restaurant in the Greenpoint neighborhood of Brooklyn called Eat. He's here to tell us about Eat's silent dinners, where everyone, including the restaurant's waitstaff, has to remain absolutely quiet during the duration of the meal. Nicholas, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Very good. So what inspired this idea for silent dinners? It comes from a long-standing preoccupation I have with 
the way that uh, people's material engagements affect their consciousness and uh, the way that we approach the mundane necessities of our lives with anything ranging from ignorance and uh, disaffection to like very profound, uh, thoughtful uh, apprehension. So I wanted to give people an opportunity to kind of leap over or examine or just have a new relationship with the mediations that language uh, enacts between ourselves and our experiences. So how do the dinners play out? Well, people come in. Uh, it's one seating of uh, a full house. So when all the reservations have arrived, I give a little hello and thanks for coming. And if we could all turn our cell phones off, please. And then um, people have already specified prior to coming whether they want uh, the vegetarian or non-vegetarian courses. And then we start uh, serving them. And then as people eat them, clear their spaces, bring the next one. And when everyone's done, we start talking again. So people know what they're getting into when they come to the restaurant. They're reserving this in advance. They're not just showing up and finding out. That's right. It's uh, you know happens once a week. So it's not like it's a silent restaurant. But... Um, there have been some walk-ins, people who come in just you know, to have dinner on a Sunday, and, uh, and we have to say, well, you know, we're doing this special thing tonight if you want to stay. And a lot of them have chosen to stay totally uh, without planning it. So the silence applies to everyone in the restaurant, right, both the staff and the patrons? That's right, yeah, in the kitchen we're uh, keeping things shushed as well. Is it hard for the staff to remain silent? I mean, they have work to do. No, it's we have a very small staff, and at these events the uh, sort of uh, nonverbal communication that we've developed really works. It's, um, you know, it's, all, it's a lot like a uh, theatrical experience where we get together beforehand and we're like, all right, are you ready? And we have, we've rehearsed a few things and we have our blocking set up and then we, uh, you know, have showtime and then let it go until the end. What if someone needs something, more water, salt, whatever it might be? You know, people are plenty creative enough to come up with ways of communicating all that. So uh, water is easy. We have water jugs on the table, and when they're empty, I'll either notice and refill it or someone will tap on it or put it at the edge of their table. Salt, there is salt around, although, you know, it's not really necessary to put salt on the food usually. I mean, that's a, you know, people have so many expectations when they come into a restaurant or what they perceive to be a restaurant or how things should work. I'm not particularly interested in fulfilling those expectations. I am interested in tweaking them and having people consider a food eating experience in public as something much different than what they're used to. What are some of the more creative ways people have communicated with you? Um, well, there have been some uh, hand signals that have gotten pretty involved. There have been some... Uh, some people trying to mouth words that I just haven't understood whatsoever. So I don't know how effective that was, but it was creative enough. People have written things on pieces of paper. But by and large, uh, there's no need for communication beyond the very subtle things that happen between our eyes or um, just nods of the head. Are you finding that most people come alone or are people coming as couples or in groups? It's totally mixed. Um, there's lots of... Uh, couples, lots of groups, and lots of people who come alone. It sort of uh, changes people's conception of what it means to eat with other people or what it means to eat alone because when you're not having conversation, you can either really 
try to get into some kind of uh, quiet communication with your eating partners, or you can be totally with yourself and with your food. So it's totally up to everyone. You know, lots of times strangers end up communicating during the meal, and then when we start talking again, they're yucking it up together, which has been a really cool thing to see. Do you think that being silent in a meal also helps you to appreciate the flavor a little bit more because you're solely focused on what you're eating? You know, obviously you can let your thoughts go somewhere else, but it does allow you to concentrate more on your food. Right. Well, that's a big part of what I'm interested in is having the five senses uh, become a much more present part of the experience and to really have a close insight into the way that all of our experiences come to whatever the the consciousness factor is behind them. So like, yeah, paying attention to the taste of the food is important, but also paying attention to the sounds that are happening as people don't talk, paying attention to the smells, paying attention to the way that things feel, the way the fork feels, the way that the food feels in the mouth. You know, there's a lot going on here besides just eating. What happens if someone breaks the silence? What do you do? Well, it hasn't happened yet, really. There's been some giggles and stuff, but I don't do anything. I'm as interested in seeing what happens uh, when a lot of people choose to participate in in the experiment as anyone else. All right. Thanks so much, Nicholas. Have a great day. That was Nicholas Nauman, Eats Managing Chef and Events Planner. The restaurant's located in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Veronica Volk and Alana Holbrook. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York, listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.